course, the news has only the one topic, COVID-19, but you, the listener, you have come through once again with all kinds of good discussion. Some of that is around COVID-19 and the response to it. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. What a in which we live. I started thinking about the folks in 1918 during the Spanish influenza. They would have been coming right off of World War One. There was a market crash soon after. I think I said this on the show recently, and if I did, forgive me, but I, I, I do know that if I were alive then, especially in a previous theological system I was in, I would have assumed this is the end of the world. A, a plague that's killing everyone coming off the largest war in human history and then financial calamity, it has to be the end of the world. And I think of them, and they it was bad as it was, and it, it is obviously a worse situation than we're in right now in this very disorienting time. At one level, they had the a disadvantage and advantage of this information age. As in whatever was happening with the Spanish flu in Europe in 1918, it would take a while to find out. And that was harmful in that we were able, we were, we were less able to prepare and, and try to mitigate the consequences. But then there was maybe some advantage to the mental and emotional anguish of freaking out over it constantly. Like we, we've been having sh- stories about this in the news since late last year to early January, and now it's kind of dominating everything. It, it makes it. I'm not saying it's not a, a big... Guys, it's a big deal. What's going on is a very big deal. It deserves all of our attention and uh, our, our, our preparation and all the mitigation efforts and all of that. I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I'm saying that this time in which we're living is so unique to even them, even the folks in 1918, because of the ubiquity of information. And at the same time, one of our big issues right now is we don't know enough. We're, we're almost guessing at infection rates. We're guessing at mortality rates. It's different in all over the all over the, the world. It's partly to do with difference in medical systems. So at one time, we just know up to the date, uh, up to the moment, everything that's going on. But then there's so much data, we don't know what, what to trust. Guys, it's just a really weird time to be alive. And we'll try to work through some of that today on the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for listening to His Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9, or if you are listening to the podcast on demand, wherever you find podcasts. Either way, I, I mean this, I'm grateful. I've seen a slight uptick here recently in the number of people who listen to new shows within the first 24 hours. So podcasting is this really cool world where you can get a lot of analytics. And there's just a couple hundred of you, maybe a few hundred of you, that are show comes out and within 24 hours you stream it and then that that number creeps up and up and up throughout the week um, and then some of you I think some of you are just natural bingers for whatever reason you wait to listen to the show like four or five episodes at a time but whatever the, the, the that what I was trying to get to is the, the number of people and I think it's because of the effect of COVID-19 everyone's at home my shows get listened to much more quickly and I am grateful thank you for listening it, it means the world to me every Every time I, I look at those numbers and see, there are human beings that give me 50 minutes a week. That is incredible. I'm so grateful that you do it. I want to get to listener feedback today. Uh, I've got something here from Mark, from Zach, from Emily, from Ellen. We've got lots of uh, information I want to give you, but I'm going to let you guys drive the show because the show is better when you drive. I want to start with Mark. Mark commented on the Facebook 
fan page. You should go like that Facebook fan page, by the way. It'd be super cool if you would do that. He commented about last week's episode that the commentary on the Rhett and Link video was just not enough. That 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 story of two now adult men in their early 40s growing up in a very the- theologically sound system and then falling away from the faith, that deserves more treatment than the 17 minutes that I gave it. And to Mark and to a few other people, I think it was four total, who said so. Uh, actually, it ended up being five. And then a very wise man, I know, named Daryl, he said, well, four or five people said it, that means 40 or 50 were thinking it. And that's totally true. Uh, that's that's usually how that stuff works. People willing to speak up represent a, a bunch of other people who aren't willing to take the time to speak up. So my thought is this, for those of you that wanted more treatment on Rhett, Rhett and Link, their deconversion and the story that they told, I think I'm going to make that a non-radio thing. It's going to be a total podcast because the nature of radio is... Partly, I love the nature of radio because it is segmented and structured and, you know, when you start and when you finish. I think there's an art and a science to making a show well that fits fits into parameters like that. In the podcasting world, technically, there are no rules. We can do whatever we want. And so I'm, I'm probably going to take in the next couple weeks a lot of time and just work through their deconversion and respond to all of those objections and how we read through Genesis and think about evolution and really get in depth with it. Uh, We've done that some on the show, but I'm talking about giving it a deep dive treatment. And so to Mark and for all those that reached out about that, it's coming. Give me some time and I will make that a podcast special. If you missed that last week, you can go find it. It's the last 17 minutes of the show. We work through uh, a gentleman's deconversion story. Next, Zach. He wrote in on Twitter and said this, I humbly suggest, which is pretty cool of him to do. I've, I tried to do something humbly once. It didn't work out. I'm really bad at doing things humbly. Uh, so I, I'm trying my best, but Zach has done it now successfully. Uh, I should probably learn from him. I humbly suggest a topic to explore on the show. That topic is the benefits of fiscal prudence, modest living, and the resilience of systems during times of a global pandemic. That's message one, and I, I want to spend maybe the entire rest of this first segment on that. What a great topic. The benefits of fiscal prudence in a time of a global pandemic. I never want to be the guy that says, hey, I told you so, but there's certainly some of us out here in the political and policy world who say from time to time, hey, maybe we're spending too much. Maybe we have too many outflows and not enough inflows in our government and when something really bad happens we are not going to be a resilient system we have maxed out all of our credit cards consider the the reality where we are now the weakened economy our economy generally runs not totally but a big chunk of it runs on the idea that other governments or banks and wealthy people even are willing to buy american bonds they're willing to buy our debt because they believe in us and they think they're going to get a return on their investment. We're having such problem with our bonds now where people are unwilling to even buy the bond to buy the American debt so we can fund some of these things we're trying to do that the Treasury, under the Trump administration, floated a 50-year bond this week. They floated the idea of, why don't you buy a 50-year bond at whatever rate they were giving? 50 years from now, we will pay off that bond. We'll pay the bond off. That's the situation we're in because we have not, as a government, lived prudently. 
I think about even in this state where I am in South Carolina, and a lot of state governments in the last few years have been running big surpluses. The economy has been so awesome up until about the last six weeks. Governments have been raking in tax dollars at the state and local level, and they, we, we almost all have surpluses. And it seems to be that politicians can't spend it fast enough. They cannot think of something that they want to create, something new that they want to do fast enough. Now, sometimes it's been great. Like in this state in South Carolina, we have grossly underpaid our teachers for a long time. They all recently got a a, a pay raise. I suspect that we're going to see good uh, return on that investment by having better people in the schools teaching. But we just spend everything we've got. And it seems like I'm crazy when I raise my hand and say, um, maybe we should just like put it in a rainy day fund. You never know when there's going to be a rainy day. You never know when there's going to be a gigantic stock market crash. You never know when there's going to be a COVID-19. You never know when the mortgage market and, the, and housing market's going to collapse again. Maybe we should just hold on to it. And we're so far removed from that, from the federal level, that here we are, $22 trillion in debt with no one really considering a way out. I, and I'm a, I think I'm a practical person on this. I have talked about before. I don't mind if we're 15, 16, that's about where I'd end, about $16 trillion in debt because of how that relates to our economic size. But our size of the economy is about $22 trillion. Our debt is about $22 trillion. And this administration in particular doesn't seem to have any interest whatsoever, just like the last administration, of diminishing that. And so you run into these times where you need resilient systems financially and you don't have them. This should, when everything does reset, when we get back to some semblance of normal, we don't need to forget these feelings of, I hate to say panic, but let, this, let the feelings that we had now of this not being sure what happens next drive us towards some fiscal sanity where we actually do reform long term Social Security and Medicare that we start there that we do say to the American military we love you guys we love what you do we are spending too much of it we're spending we are spending too much of what we've got on making you even more powerful than you are you're already the best fighting force in human history you could stack up the next five militaries on this planet and they don't touch you guys so we are not, we're not going to fund you like we have funded you I, I know I just said two things that make two groups mad we got we we've got to for all of time before social security reform social security and medicare i personally we got to get we have to get rid of them they're gone for people 50 and under people 50 and under should stop considering it as an option they were they had their time those ideas are done they're, those are bad ideas going forward and so uh, that makes folks on the left sad and not just the left i think some folks on the right but they see the the, they see the properly the injustice of people planning their retirement to have Social Security and then having it taken from them. And those people are right, by the way. I just, that's why I said under 50, it should be eliminated. And then it makes folks on the right mad when you say we've overfunded the military and it's, you know, it's powerful enough. And so I'm just tossing out there, when this is all over, goodness, can we just sit down and not talk about what we want to be true, but talk about what is true, what is the reality of our fiscal situation, and humbly decide we're going to be more modest about what we spend at the federal level. For Zach writes, let's talk about the benefits of fiscal prudence and modest living. Now, one of my favorite, I, you know, modest living be, being essentially, I'm not going to spend all that I make. 
I'm going to live under my means. I'm going to have a modest life. I think it's Proverbs 20 or it's, it's 20 or 21, one of the two. And then it's verse 21. So it's either 21, 20 or 20, 21. It says something like, uh, precious treasure are a wise man's dwelling. So he, he doesn't spend all he has. He has treasure. He keeps some of it. And then the contrast is, but a foolish man uh, devours it or spends all that he has, depending on your translation. It's something like that. It is foolish to spend all that you have. It is wise to hold some of it back. David Platt, one of my favorite preachers, pastors, says that uh, when when he was making very little money, they they had the house they lived in, the cars they had, they they had their standard of living, and they were happy. Uh, and then he started making some real money. You know, he wrote a best-selling book called Radical. He started being invited to speak, and he started making some real money. And it occurs to him, well, now I've got this money. I can afford newer, better cars. I can afford a bigger house. But we're happy. Just because I have new money doesn't mean I have to spend new money. And so, you know, even I think here, here I am. I'm recording this right now from my living room, no, from my dining room table in my 1,500 square foot, three bedroom, two bathroom house. I'm a single guy. I've got too much house. Like, I could be living under my means more than I'm currently living. And having that, having that wealth to be generous with or to hold on to for times like this. And man, is times like this a good reminder when things finally get back to normal? Can we thought, think about our modest living? That we're not always looking for the next vacation, the next thing, the next car, the next, oper- the, the next thing to spend on, but that we are just satisfied. G.K. Chesterton has one of my favorite Chesterton has one of my favorite quotes on this. He says there are two ways to have enough. One is to get more, the other is to want less. And modest living, as Zach right here, Zach writes here, would lead us to wanting less. And then finally, in that first part of his message, he says, "Can we talk about the benefits of fiscal prudence, modest living, and the resilience of systems?" You know that's. It's one thing it's hard to take uh, any appreciation for thus far, but it's a it's a really disorienting time. But our systems, medical system, governments, in general worldwide, there's been some stability there. There should be some appreciation for it, but also recognizing that our our systems take us being prudent and being vigilant for them to stay strong in these times that are so trying. Uh, Zach has more when we come back from this break, and then we're going to get to more reactions from you. And it's not all COVID-19 related today, uh, but a lot of it is. And uh, it's not just about the disease and how we're handling it, but it's about response and some, you know how we do it on the show here. We think deeper. We think, oh yeah, I didn't even say that at the beginning. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk. And today we're going to do smarter, deeper, better talk about COVID-19, the reaction there too, and lots of other stuff when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Act. You will find me there. I also failed to mention in the opening segment, I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. And for right now, Beachwood Church meets on the internet out on the YouTube machine. Also, sometimes I share it on Facebook so you can access it on YouTube. 
at least one more Sunday like that. I am trusting and praying that this coming Sunday, that'll be the 29th, will be the last, am I right about that? 29th? Yeah, the last the last Sunday of this month, whenever that is, will be the last time that we meet online. It was awesome. It was a good experience. I would actually, let me publicly commend my pastor and elder brother who single-handedly put it together. Like we, we had a, a very high quality broadcast that I had nothing to do with. Like he just made it happen. And so uh, his flexibility is highly, highly regarded and highly appreciated. All right. So uh, if you want to join us 1030 online on Sunday, we will be there for you. Now, uh, I, was read, I want to read the end of this message from Zach. We'll move on to the next topic. Zach writes, This is why we shouldn't run trillion-dollar deficits for a decade of economic boom, so that in a real crisis like this or a war, we can have either an emergency fund built up or put some on the national credit card to be paid off when the economy gets back up and going. Obviously agree. You know, we, we have had record... Uh, how many years in a row was it? Oh, it charted in 2015. It was a 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Fact check me on this if I'm. I might be wrong. I think I'm right. I think it's 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. We had record numbers of inflows. So the 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 number of dollars who that went into the federal government was record highs every year. So the federal government was getting more money than ever. Yet. We were spending more than ever and going into larger deficits, almost that we've ever that we've ever seen. And so there should be a voice in government that steps up and says, "Hey guys, we're bringing in more dollars than we've ever had. Maybe we should hang on to some of those and quit spending them so quickly." Or get this: What if we designate some of those dollars just to pay down the debt, to pay back those bonds, pay to pay? down that debt so that number comes down more because you never know when there's going to be a global pandemic and you guys are going to want to spend a trillion dollars in a month on a stimulus package to try to help the economy. And so we, we got to have adults. I mean, I, I'll give you an illustration here of, it's one of my favorite illustrations financially. It's for musicians and athletes. It's, I have found that it's one of the more unfair features of our tax system is that we tax by the year. Consider being an athlete or a popular musician. Athletes will make probably 90% or more of all the dollars they're ever going to earn. They're going to earn in about a five-year period because you can be a running back in the NFL for about five years before your body breaks down. So you're going to make your 11 or $12 million in about five years and then before you were running back, you were making basically nothing. And unless you get on TV as a broadcaster, after being a running back, you're going to make a very average salary in your life. But during those four or five years, we beat the mess out of that, that athlete because of, the, of with taxation, and he can't spread that tax burden over his entire working life. Same thing for musicians. Very few of them have 10, 11, 12, 20, 30, 40 years of a career. There's a lot of one-hit wonders out there. There's a lot of bands that are big for just a little bit of time. Some of my favorite ones are just just gone. I mean, I, I love the All-American Rejects. They had a three- or four-year run. Gone. Don't know. Couldn't find them right now if you tried. But we taxed them like crazy over that period of time where they're making a bunch of money. And you can find, then, stories about those that did it well and didn't do it well. They made a bunch of money, saved some of it. They were prudent and it lasts them the rest of their life. And you can also find on VH1 the stories of the musicians who 
who's usually I was oh can't be that graphic. They used it all on drugs. Let's just do that. They used it all on drugs or other dumb things. And so he, the illustration then back to us. So we're making more than we've ever had right now. The federal government's rolling in money. Man, maybe we should start paying down some of that debt so that we have a, a better outlook on when we when we do need to issue debt, when we need to issue a bond and people buy the bond. Cuz right now we're having trouble getting people to buy our bonds. I should go ahead and uh, m- mention here, and, and Zach, thanks for writing in. I appreciate uh, appreciate the thoughts. We're, we're in total agreement. I, I do favor the, I, the idea of having to do some kind of stimulus. Essentially, it is the government's orders that have caused this economic calamity. You, you think about people working hourly, you think about small business owners and them not being able to open their doors. This is financial ruin for some people. And the government has ordered it. The government has ordered you to be ruined. And therefore, it is now a, a, it is a moral and is a good thing for the government to come alongside and say, well, we did ruin you, and so we're going to also try to make you whole, or at least close to it, through a fiscal stimulus of some sort. And so here I am, never wanting to spend a government dollar that we don't want to spend, and you got me going, yeah, we probably got to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to prop up this economy for the long term. And then I run into this idea of having to do that through selling more bonds, going a trillion dollars more in debt to prop up this economy, knowing, well, we just had all these surpluses. We shouldn't be having to do that. Our debt should be lower now so that we can feel better about having to issue these bonds. But because we are so far in debt, people don't even want to buy these bonds. But uh, I should mention, all right, so I, I am for doing something to, uh, to help those who have been hurt. I don't like what, what I've seen from Republicans or Democrats in terms of specific ideas. Just as an example, the Republicans seem like they want to just do some handouts, some giveaways, it looks like $1,200 maybe, to household, to, to people who made less than, I think it's $75,000 on their 2018 tax returns. So I mean, I understand 2019 tax returns aren't ready, and there's some, but there, there, there's some injustice in that, because again, with entrepreneurs, some years are great, some years are terrible. Um, I, I don't like using it that way. If anything, I wouldn't mind if you're going to try to target it, try to target hourly workers because consider me for a minute. My day job is a salary job. My income is not going to be affected by this but for whatever months this affects us. There's no reason I should be getting a check. There's no reason I should get a check from this, from this government. And if I do, I'm going to find something unique to, and something creative to do with it because my income has not been affected. But for those who are, you, you, when you don't work, you don't get paid. You can, and you can't work from home. That's not the situation. Well, then, yeah, the government's literally ruining you right now. You're getting behind on all of your, your bills. You're going into all kinds of debt if you're putting on credit cards. Yeah, the government, they, they wrecked you with their maybe necessary precautions, but now we all come together, and that government needs to do something to make it, to make it right because they wrecked you financially. So I, I, my idea would be those two. I don't like what we're doing now. I don't like the idea of, of money just going out to basically everybody. I would like to do two things. One is direct stimulus checks from the government to hourly workers 
that's at least a way to narrow it some and maybe do it as hourly workers who made less than like that 75 grand in um in 2018 if you have to use that year but the other one I'd want to do is is not what they're what they're promoting what the Republican bill and the Democrats are voting for it too what they seem to be doing is wanting to issue low interest and very flexible loans to businesses. So saying, if you need money to keep running right now, here it is, here's that money, and it will be at very low interest and flexible payback. I, I, I'm just skeptical that any politician is ever going to actually demand payback for those things. We all love small business too much for anyone to ever do it. The way, And then it's also indiscriminate. Uh, there's people getting those loans who... If, if you actually had to go to a bank and work with an actuary and see through the kind of risk, you probably wouldn't get the loan. So I would prefer the federal government issue some extra funds, basically digitize or monetize it, to the banks. Let the banks issue those loans because at least they're going to do some due diligence on who should and who shouldn't get those loans uh, for the small business world. So that's how I would handle it. I don't like how we're handling it. We do need to do something. The, the federal government wrecked the economy, maybe for good reason. For maybe maybe the health the health stuff outweighs the financial calamity, but they did wreck the economy. So the way they have to make it right is help individuals with who are hourly with direct payments and those who are business owners by giving banks some funds to lend and let the banks do the due diligence on who should and who should not get those loans. All right. So thanks, Zach, for that uh, for that email. I want to read to you this. It's from Martin Luther, how he handled... Martin Luther, by the way, you've got to know. Um, uh, you know Luther, right? 95 Theses to the door, Wittenberg. Yeah, you know who he is. During the, uh, the a deadly plague, he, he wrote this. So he had a letter from a guy named John Hess, Dr. John Hess, about w- what do you do when there's the, the Black Plague? Because Martin Luther lived through the Black Plague as we are now living through a, a pandemic. I just thought this was helpful. My... Our our lead pastor shared this with me, and so I just want to share it with you. Here's what Martin Luther said about a time somewhat like this. He said, I shall ask God to mercifully I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take medicine. I will avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See this as a God-fearing faith, because it is... See see this... Yeah, here it goes. See this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy. Man, that's good wisdom. And good balance for where we are because we're. I, I'm seeing the panic and the freak out, and then I'm seeing, oh, it's no big deal. And so there's a balance in those things where, well, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to take precautions, but I'm I'm also going to, I, I am going to do the absolute ne- uh, things that are necessary to help others and find that that balance in there. You know, I don't have this in my notes, but here we go. I'm going to do a little a uh, little side thing here. Maybe I maybe I shouldn't. I have noticed. This as well. This is one of my specialties. One of the specialties of the Corey Truax show is seeing the hypocrisy in the political world on all sides. Because 
I won't play the game and pretend that one side is better than the other in their hypocrisy. We've got just a bunch of people who love their team. They, they cheer for their team no matter what. Here's a weird thing I've noticed. Anti-Trump people, and then I'll talk about Trump people. Anti-Trump people have this cognitive dissonance that I don't understand. They're the most apop- apocalyptic in talking about this disease. that they, they think it's going to end the world, and then they respond to the Trump administration's very harsh, like, shutting down travel to Europe, and then originally it was just China. Like, they talk about his restrictions like they're too, like they're too harsh. So, it's apocalypse. We're all going to die, but also, Trump administration, you're being too harsh. Oh, well, that doesn't seem to match. But then equally, Trump people, they seem to be the ones that are most cavalier about this. And it's not that big of a deal, and we, we, we shouldn't... We shouldn't be so scared of it. But then also, these very, sometimes, draconian measures to try to stop the spread of this thing, they're all for it. In both sides there. Guys, that's a weird thing. I was was just told about a few hours ago that there is, uh, from the Department of Justice, uh, looking for the, the authority during this time of emergency to detain people, detain American citizens without a writ of habeas corpus, without the, the right to be seen before a judge. The idea here being, well, in this state of emergency, uh, when we, we don't have judges and uh, attorneys all being in the same place, when people have to be separated from one another, if somebody needs to be arrested and detained without trial until after the emergency, then fine. Let's do that. We should all be up in arms going, no! You don't get to, you don't get to suspend the Constitution for this stuff. But like that kind of measure coming out of the Trump administration, there's... There's folks on the Trump side who are like, yeah, this disease is not a big deal. But yeah, sure, suspend habeas corpus. Who needs it? And so there's been that hypocrisy out there that has annoyed me deeply and greatly. All right, next up here. Um, I got this one sent to me from Emily. I, I would say listener to the show, but she's actually been on the show. She was on during the Enneagram episode. I was going to play for you the audio, but it's just too too long now. I've gone, I've gone on too long with other things. There's a church in Louisiana... It is a definitely charismatic church that that was that's been meeting and uh, with hundreds of people present, and obviously the, uh, the the question there is is that okay for a church to be doing? I would argue no. Uh, ch- churches, with, especially with the internet now, you're not being asked to stop meeting in perpetuity. You've been asked by the federal government not to meet for a couple weeks. Here in South Carolina, it doesn't even seem like. Doesn't even seem like McMaster would have us not meet for those two weeks. He seems to be saying you know, we're going to get back to normal pretty soon. So, uh, yeah, this church that did that it was a terrible idea. Uh, it's 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 just it seems to not value enough human life. Like we're, we're the Imago Dei people. That's what Christians are. We believe in the image of God on people. In that particular congregation, as with a lot of congregations, is a bit older. That was a very risky move. To to have everybody meet together so regularly. And you could tell this comes from a really bad theology because at the end of the video that I can't play you, or the audio I can't play you, this guy says, you know, we're, we're giving out anointed cloths, anointed healing cloths. We, we've had here healings of the coronavirus. Oh, no. No, you didn't. That's not how that works. Take any kind of just systematic theology, really any theology, and you would know that this is an idiotic thing for you to say. Moreover, 
Your coughs aren't anointed. You're not Paul. Your shadow doesn't heal people. Oh, the um, the theology that comes out of that charismatic movement. It hurts people. It's damaging. It's bad for people. And thanks, Emily, for sending that in. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. Now, granted, after this two weeks are up, if, if the federal government isn't asking for us not to meet, I think at Beachwood, I mean, I, I'm only speaking for myself here, but I say we meet. Let's go. Let's get, let's get, let's get together. Uh, the, the church getting together is one of the greatest blessings we've been given. So uh, it's time to time to do it if, if we're not asked to stop. Uh, what do we have? Oh, I have 30 seconds. So I'm going to go ahead and take the break. When we come back, I have thoughts still related to COVID-19, but not all COVID-19 stuff. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. I am about to do one of those very difficult things to do in broadcasting where I'm going to do some COVID-19 related stories very quickly and then change subjects all together. But you're, you're the best audience there's ever been. So if anyone can do it, you guys have that flexibility mentally. So here we go. I saw this headline sent to me by Ellen. Thanks, Ellen, for listening and for uh, sending it in. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. And then I did read the rest of the story and it helped clarify. So I, I saw the headline from Politico and it was, Germany confirms that Trump tried to buy the firm working on a coronavirus vaccine. And I, th- I think, by the way, that was being sent to me because I said something that was incorrect, that it was going to be us, it was going to be the Americans that came up with whatever the solution was. And it does appear that this is a, that other parts of the world are going to be very important, if not actually be the key to coming up with the vaccine. I think that was more Ellen's point. But the, uh, and so to the rest of the world, hey, thanks. Appreciate you guys doing that. We, we Everybody get on it. Uh, well, I don't care who solves this thing. This is one of those situations where I could not possibly care less who gets the credit. Ronald Reagan's one of his famous quotes. Uh, There's no limit to what a group of people can accomplish if no one cares who gets the credit. Well, I don't care who gets the credit. Someone just solve it, please. This is all very bad. Uh, but then I read through the story because that sounds terrible to me. Like Donald Trump tried to buy the company is, is he trying to profit? Like, he's going to die soon anyways. Pretty old. Like, how much more money do you need, man? But that's not what, that's not actually the story. The story is, quote, the, uh, the Donald Trump administration offered, quote, large sums of money to get exclusive access to a, a coronavirus vaccine being developed by a German company. And so really, still, I don't know if this is good. Maybe, you know, governments are instituted among men to protect their own people. But basically, he was just trying to say, will pay for Americans to benefit more than anyone else benefits. There's some there's some moral concerns there, obviously. Uh, but, hey, look around the world. The is, I've seen it's Israel. There's a couple other countries that have been playing a major part in solving this problem long term. Number two, I, I have to cover this. A couple of you sent this. Uh, I think Kelly was one. There's another who sent me a uh, – I have a couple Kellys that listen. But one of the Kellys sent me, uh, sent me this story. If it is true that Senator Burr, I believe of North Carolina, if it is true that on February 13th he got a briefing on COVID-19 and what the possible the possible consequences could be, and then he went and sold what appears to be over $1 million worth of shares in U.S. companies, that's if he did that, he shouldn't just have to resign. And if he, doesn't, if he refuses to resign, he should be impeached and removed. And then he should be prosecuted to the full 
extent of the law. The amount of trust you break as a leader by using inside information to benefit yourself financially while the rest of us just lost our shirt because of the market crash, no, sir. Not just out of office, not having to resign in shame. If you don't resign, then impeached. And after impeached, you should go to prison. And it appears there are some others who might have done something similar, but he's the one that it looks the most egregious. My position for, on this has been the case for a long time. If you're going to be in public office, all of your investments should be in a blind trust. You don't get to you don't get to see how your money is being handled and managed. You give that off to a to an agency and they manage your finances for you because there's just too much of a chance for you to unethically try to enrich yourself. And if someone is unwilling to do that, then guess what? Don't run for office. If you're not willing to do that, you are not one of our moral leaders and you shouldn't be in office. It would also disincentivize people from being in it forever. Because you want to go, I want to serve the people. All right, well, you serve for six years and you think, you know, I'm not really getting to manage my money the way I want to handle it. I'm going to step away and let someone else lead now. That'd be a healthier thing all the way around. Uh, But if Senator Byrd did that, he should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Next, got a couple questions about the president calling it the China virus or the Chinese virus. I'm, I'm sort of indifferent on that. I do want to make clear, though, that China should be punished. China is at fault here, above all else. It happened in their country because of their, some of their, I'll say it, culturally backward situations and how they've dealt with folks in poverty. They, they lied and concealed information for months that could have helped the rest of the world. I don't care one way or the other, one way or the other about calling it the Wuhan flu or the China, the Chinese virus. You, you've probably all seen the video of CNN was calling it the Chinese virus two months ago. They were calling it the Wuhan flu two months ago. It's obviously not racist. I don't particularly care one way or the other about calling it that, but China should be punished. And when I say China, I mean it's government. It's people didn't do anything wrong here, but there's got to be ways, and I have some ideas if you want to hear them, on how to actually punish China. Two more thoughts on coronavirus and COVID-19. One of our biggest problems is that we just have a lack of information and we get conflicting information. This is something that has to get fixed. We got to actually get some data on this thing, what its mortality rate is, transmission rates. We're, We're operating, it seems to be out of a lot of guesses and I don't have any better information, obviously. I'm a nothing and a nobody, but we've, we've got to do something about that. Uh, and then final thought. We do, we do have to start having a discussion about balancing the different human goods. So here we are from a Christian perspective. We're for human flourishing. That's what we're for above all else. Well, we, want, we don't want people to get infected and overwhelm the healthcare system and die. Also, we don't want to wreck the economy where people are in poverty long term. And so uh, the the language that has I've heard some people say, well, if, if these efforts save one life, then we should do them. Well, hold on. Saving that physical one life, there has to be some limit to that. So if, if we're in a, in a depression for, for, for years, is that was that worth saving the one life? Because that's going to ruin other people in other ways. You start getting into depressions and you start seeing suicide rates go up and you start seeing poverty go up and you see healthcare outcomes go down for a lot of other people. And so there's got to be some balance. I don't think we found it well enough yet on the balance between economic interest and human interest 
I'm still thinking through that, and if you have thoughts on it, I will be glad to take them at CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com, or Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Find me, Corey Truax. Now, we're going to make this big switch because I had such a response to that Rhett and Link audio from a week ago. I've told you at the beginning of the show, I'm going to do an entire podcast on this that won't that won't air on his radio talk. I'm probably going to be using this sermon to start. There's a guy named Tim Mackey. He's from the Bible Project. He's utterly brilliant, and I follow a lot of his a lot of his teaching. He's an expert on Hebrew Hebrew languages, and so when we start getting into origins and and what the and where we all came from, he did a very good job of explaining that Genesis, its purpose, was never to tell you scientific facts. That when Moses wrote Genesis, he was not trying to give you a play-by-play of how the world came into being. And he illustrates that primarily by saying, one of the things that we can't do in our culture is we can't go get on a plane, go to France, and say, speak English. Or, did you see the last episode of American Idol? Like, we, we can't speak to them in our language and presume they're going to understand what we mean. Well, we do that, we presume upon the Bible our Western world and our Americanism, and Moses would say back to us, the writer of Genesis, no, you, you, you need to come understand where I'm coming from. I wrote it. I understood the world in a particular way. You need to understand what, what I was writing to my original audience and so here's a little bit of a sermon from Tim Mackey. I think it's totally worth you all going and listening to it. Uh, excuse me, it's not a sermon. It's more of a lecture. I'm going to play a piece of it for you now to set it up. He is he's going to be explaining how there's this what these words in Hebrew and Genesis mean, basically the first sentence of the Bible, and how it's it, it's hard to bring that into modern American English. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or I, I think more accurately. When God began to create the heavens and the earth. Now, let's just make some, some observations here. The word beginning, this is the first sentence of the Bible. The word beginning in, in English. We, th- we think of beginning as, uh, as a point in time before which there, who knows, we're not concerned. We're considered about a point in time and then a sequence of chronology or se- a sequence of time after that point. So the English word beginning means. That is not what the Hebrew word reshit means. Reshit is actually a very unspecific word. It's not it's very general. Hebrew has a word for a beginning point of time from which a sequence of events follows. That word is techilah. And that is not the word that begins the Bible. The word that begins the Bible is the word reshit which refers, it's really, it's about as specific as our English phrase, way back when, you know, at the be- in the beginning, before... Isn't that interesting? That we have imported upon the Bible's meaning, because we put it in the King James English, in the beginning, we, see, we say that as, from the moment time began. But there's a word that means that in Hebrew. And Moses chose not to use it. When Moses sat down to write Genesis... He didn't do that. He didn't choose the word that is from the beginning. He actually chose the word, well, when things began, or way back when, that's really what that word means, but we got affected by our translation into American English. And 
that's not been helpful as we've tried to apply scientific facts to a text that didn't want to be scientific. He continues on here with that first that first verse. So in the beginning, which really, when things began a long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth, and he talks you through that. Let me pitch another question to you. The English word earth, I say the English word earth, and what comes into your minds? What image do you have in your mind? Yes, of course, all right? So, right, the planet, planet, the globe. So, let me, let me ask you a question. You can see uh, from the picture up here, how long have human beings had access to the mental image of the earth, the English word earth, referring to a globe? How long? Yeah, like 50-ish years. 50 well, it's a little longer than that. 50-ish years, as far as uh, the public. 50 years. How old is Genesis chapter 1? Oh, yes, it's like 3,000 years old. Right? So if you picture a globe in your head, it's the equivalent of flying to France and just assuming everyone's going to speak English and want to talk about American Idol. No, no, stop, stop. You're importing your view of the world back into this ancient text. It's a really good point. We, we just had that word translated Earth. We think of Earth, big round planet that I've seen from pictures from satellites and from uh, from spaceships. But what did Moses mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We read that as the unseen realm and the seen realm. He created other worlds and this world that we can see. But what he actually meant was he created the skies up there that I see and he created the earth that I'm walking on right now. In the beginning, at the beginning of things, a long time ago, God created what's underneath me and what's above me. That's the more literal translation because obviously Moses didn't know about the earth being a globe. And that's that, and to try to get him to understand that is placing a burden upon him in the text that you really can't place on him. I'm going to have Mackie, Dr. Mackie here give you another example of this. This is chapter 1 where the meaning of words uh, links to cultural understanding. Uh, the second Day. We'll talk about the days of Genesis 1 a little bit here. Uh, verse 6. Then God said, let there be a rakia between the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the rakia and separated the water under the rakia from the water above the rakia. And the first question that you have is, what on earth is the rakia? <laughs> What's the rakia? Well, let's turn to our English translations and let's see. Oh, well, this isn't going to help us. <laughs> so the New American Standard, NIV, translate it as expanse. The New Living Translation translates it as space. The classic you know, uh, King James translates it as firmament. I don't know what on earth a firmament is. Uh, and the New Revised Standard Translation uh, translates it as dome. Oh, so this is all very clear. <laughs> so what's the rakia? What is the rakia? Well, the Hebrew word raka refers to something that uh, a, a smith, a blacksmith or a metalsmith does. It refers to the hammering out a piece of metal on an anvil. And I'm running out of time, so I have to cut him off here, but let that serve as a preview. I'm going to do probably a series of podcasts. So if you're listening live on, on his radio talk, seek out the podcast to work through some of the issues Rhett talked about that led to his deconversion. Very important point there was already a conclusion for him. He was not a believer. And he was looking for the ways to establish that it was okay for him to not, to be, to not be a believer. And those were the routes he took. But 
if you do want answers to some of those questions, then let me work you through some of that, and I'm going to use a lot of Tim Mackey for it. Just to con- go continue on that riff, c- the rest of the language of the Bible often gives you a hint of the of where they're all coming from, and it's not our worldview. Like, you can actually, we'll get some language from the biblical writers about the pillars of the earth, that the earth stands on pillars. Well, there's a reason for that. In the ancient world, the idea was, well, if we dig down far enough, what do we hit? We hit water. So how's the how's this land standing up? Well, it's probably on pillars, because there's a lot of water below us. When you talk about the waters above the earth and below the earth, what they mean is above that rakia, above that sky, well, there's probably water above that. Well, why? Well, because every now and then, that sky opens up, and there's like water that comes down. So there's like waters under the earth and above the earth, and because they don't know the stuff we knew, or stuff we know now. And so what the, the Bible does not intend to do is make a bunch of scientific arguments. And then folks on the secular side want to say, so the Bible was inaccurate by what it was saying there about the planet. It wasn't talking about the planet. Stop imposing upon it something it wasn't trying to do. The Bible is ultimately the story of God creating a good place to be with his creation and us joining him in joining him in the management of that creation and then our fall from that grace and then God's sovereign work to bring us back into full relationship with him that's the story of the scriptures and to demand of it other things is going to confuse us and it's going to cause us all kinds of problems so i know that was a a quick turn but i wanted to give you a preview of what i will be doing i can't give you a timeline i'm busy but I'm going to do a series of podcasts on those issues that Rhett and Link brought up in that deconversion story. I'll get to it as fast as I can. And if you are so inclined, go find timmackey.com, timmackey.com, and that lecture is called Science and Faith. It is a really good one. We'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.